Well, good morning. Glad to see everybody here, and I know we've got a lot of people traveling, so if you're listening online or maybe in the car on the way back in, be careful, and, and uh, if you can, if you're, not, if you're not somewhere where you don't have it, uh, open your Bibles up to Psalm 59. That's where we find ourselves this morning. Um, uh, this is another one of those Psalms that we have a context for, and, and that's, that's always good and, and helpful. Because it helps us know sort of where David is in his situation and especially in his mindset as he writes this psalm. And so you can turn there if you want to or just make a note. The context for this psalm is 1 Samuel chapter 19. Um, and so what we're getting in this lament is sort of the cradle to the grave kind of understanding let hard times and suffering and so lament is part of all of our life. This was very early in David's life and ministry. Um, he was still actually in the king's house when all of these events, this relationship with Saul, began to dissolve. And, and so the context is not him in, as a king. The context is not with him in a cave that we've been. The context is still in Saul's house, but he's in the process of running for his life. Uh, and so David, think about it, this is, this is his heart as he writes this. David had been a, a fierce, faithful warrior for Saul and for the kingdom, and yet Saul was jealous and wanted him dead. David didn't know it, but David's going to be on the run for the next 15 years of his life where this king, this powerful king, would bring all of his resources as the king to seek to kill him, this little David. And, and David didn't understand it. I mean, David didn't ask for any of this. Think about it. David's sitting on a hill, minding his own business, taking care of his sheep. And the next thing you know, he's thrust into this situation that would dominate his life. A suffering that did not seem to end. A suffering from a powerful person who has more power seemingly than he did individually. How's he going to deal with it? This was a prolonged season of suffering in his life. And so here's his sort of his plea in his prayer. This is his heart when he writes this. I didn't do anything. You know, oftentimes we say that when we really did. But David really didn't. And so what does he do? We, we come to Psalms 59. This is what he did. So let's stand in honor of God's word. And let's read this. Psalm 59, the subtitle here says, To the choir master, according to the do not destroy a victim of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You Lord of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back 
howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph over my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more. That they may know that the God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their feel. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress, a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress the God whose steadfast love. Let's pray. Lord, we are gathered again. Lord, some of us are are traveling or watching at home today for many reasons. And yet, Lord, we're all gathered here for one reason. Because we have all felt like David. And if we hadn't, we know we will. A storm a person, a situation, Lord, that just won't go away. Sometimes, Lord, we don't understand why you don't take it away. And we thank you, Lord, for these lessons from the Lament Psalms that teach us that we come to you first with our questions and our struggles, our honest feelings and emotions that are oftentimes confused. We get angry like David is. And so, Lord, we come to your word today to teach us who you are and how we might fight in this life that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So 1 Timothy 6, 12 tells us to fight the good fight of faith. So how do you do that? That's what we want to look at again this morning with yet another lament psalm. And, and each week, I'm, I hope you grab it, there is each week a word or a phrase that he brings to bear in this struggle in the midst of our own suffering or a season of suffering in our life. And the word today is fortress. Fortress, that's the word of this psalm. The word he brings into you, your life, to understand, and it it drives us, and we'll come back to that in our application. Why was a fortress such an important picture for David to bring to light here? This is something that we can all understand. In any day, and in any society, for that society to thrive, for you to thrive individually, For them to thrive individually and as a society, they must have safety. They must have security. That's important because if people will not buy or trade, you ever notice how the stock market goes down when something bad happens in the 
country, people's, people's confidence gets a little weary, what do they stop doing? They stop spending money. In order for society to develop, to be a society, you've got to have security. So the word fortress comes from the word fortification. And you have it in your life just like they did. Your homes are fortified. Your cars are fortified. You'd be surprised if I got everybody stand up in the room that has their concealed carry. We do that to make sure that we aren't only protected, but those that we are under our charge are protected. This is part of God. We don't do that for no reason. There's a confidence that we have to have. Children cannot thrive and grow without security. And so for them, that looked like fortification. And there were four aspects to fortification in that day. First was walls. Big walls, tall walls, thick walls, walls. The more technology developed, the, the bigger, the thicker, and the taller the walls got. Sometimes they would even have double walls. People, some people estimate that even Jericho might have had a double wall. And so it, it was a wall, then there was a of grass or mud in between there on a slope, on an angle, and then another wall after that. But they developed, uh, some people estimate that the walls of Jericho was 13 to 20 feet tall, about 6 feet thick. Jerusalem later would have 40 foot tall walls, 8 feet thick. You ever heard it was wide enough for a chariot to ride on top of the wall? That's how thick it was. The second aspect to, to, to their fortification was gates. They had gates because this wasn't a prison. It was a fort. It was meant to grant access to who had access to the city, but to restrict access for those who did not. Those gates were locked down tight when the enemy came. They had gates, but they also had towers. Towers were strategically pointed. The, the towers of Jericho, some think, were some 28 feet tall. In Jerusalem, its walls, they had 34 watchtowers around that city to make sure that they would not only see the enemy before they got there, but also they could see help before they got there. The fourth aspect to their fortification was location, location, location. They wanted to make sure it was on a hill, on some kind of a raised plateau. They wanted to be able to make it difficult to be attacked. That was important. Here's the transcendent question in their life, as it is in your life. Can man provide for himself all he needs for safety, security, and confidence in his life? Can you just simply pull up, pull up by your own bootstraps and do it your way, the way you want to? Can you thrive and grow on your own two feet without help from anyone? You can believe that if you want to, but life will soon prove that that's not true. So the psalmist reminds us something this morning, that God is our fortress. And he, he's our fortress to provide refuge and triumph. He is our fortress to be offensive and defensive so we might live in safety and triumph over our enemies and put the Lord on display in the process. I want us to see just four weapons. There's some aspects of this psalm I'm going to leave alone today. We've looked at those over the last few weeks. I want us to hone in first on the most obvious four weapons. First is prayer. This is the obvious weapon. This is what every... 
lament psalm really is. It's, it's a song, but it's also a prayer. Prayer is talking to God. We say that right sort of tongue-in-cheek, but then go out in the, tonight about 10 o'clock and look up in the sky, you know, and think, you? What gives you the right to talk to God? What gives you the right to think you can talk to God and that he'll listen? Oh, you can talk, but is he listening? Is his ear bent toward you? Why would he listen to you? It's overwhelming when you think about it to say we individually and collectively have access to God in prayer. But this was David's primary hope. Hebrews 4.16 says this. Prayer is our privilege. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the offer of Hebrews is trusting in the same thing David is. That not only that we have access, but that we can in our frail temporal selves confidently enter into the very presence of God. But here's the question. Do you really see prayer as a weapon? A weapon? Not just merely for keeping ground, but for triumph. That's what David actually wants. David's just not about surviving. David wants to triumph. He wants to live. Ephesians 6 teaches us that prayer is how the church advances our kingdom work. It's how we win. It's how God saves people. It's how we move this this thing, the ball, forward. Verse Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Listen in verse 19. And also for me, why is prayer important? That the words may be given to me in opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Prayer is essential for Paul to move the gospel forward in what he's doing. Prayer is war, brothers and sisters. Prayer is war. Prayer is how we fight. Prayer is how we put the armor on. Prayer is how we gain the power to use the armor when we put it on. Prayer is how we don't give up when we feel like giving up. Prayer is how we have victory over sin and self and the enemy that attacks us. If you got Ephesians 6, now put these two verses together. Put this two whole thing together. Look at verse 10. It says, finally, Ephesians 6:10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Verse 18, pray at all times in the spirit. Prayer is how we fight. Listen, this is true. Talking to anyone makes us feel better, doesn't it? And so talking to God does. It makes us feel better. But listen to me today. Prayer is not meant to be merely therapeutic. Prayer is war. If you don't understand that, you're treating God more like a therapist than a savior, more than a God that he is, a God that wages war on behalf of his children and gives a victory over 
the things going on in our life. Do you treat prayer that way? See, if you treat it that way, you understand Saul had more to fear than David because David has brought his innocence up before the just God and said, God, I am innocent and he is persecuting me. What are you going to do? And he entrusts that to God. Prayer is how we fight the enemy. It's also how we flee to safety, to our fortress. God is a warrior. So prayer is essential because the enemy is relentless, verse 3. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up anger against me. The, 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 metaphor, the metaphor today is dogs. It has been lions and snakes. Today, is, now it's dogs. This enemy is like a, a pack of wild dogs. Look at verse 6. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are bellowing with their mouths with sharp swords in their lips. For who they think will hear us? Each evening they come back, verse 14. Each evening they come back howling like dogs, prowling about the city. They wander about for food and they never get their fill. Dogs are awesome, right? We like dogs. You're dog people. I'm a dog guy. I know some of you are cat people. I'm praying for you. You're on my prayer list. <laughs> dog people. This, but listen, you can take, I got two dogs in the backyard. As a matter of fact, my backyard's my fortress, by the way. Guess what happens when something climbs in that backyard? Mm-hmm. But you set down my two dogs, my two nice dogs. You turn them loose and put them with about three other dogs and you give them a little bit of time, they will be dangerous. Dogs are dangerous when they get in packs. Dogs in that day wasn't like our dogs. They had watch dogs and they did have herd dogs. But most dogs roamed around wild. They were scavengers. They were like what we would see today, coyotes. That's what he's He's saying, Saul and his men are like wild dogs, and, and they won't stop chasing me. And so i got to look up and look around and find somewhere and something more powerful than them for me to enter into so that I could have rest. That's what prayer is for. Prayer sets God in contrast to your enemies. That's what it's for. Prayer says, this is my enemy or this is my situation. This is what I can't do anything about. They won't stop chasing me. You're going to do something with that in your life. You're going to compare that to someone else, to yourself, or to God. What he's saying is, contrast it with the Almighty that cares for you. That's what we do in prayer. Prayer sets my God. Look at verse 1. My God against my enemies. That's, that's what Paul means in Ephesians when he says we use the shield of faith. We use that practically speaking by coming to God in prayer and contrasting our situation with a sovereign God who cares for us. It helps us regain our perspective. In the midst of the storm, there's some things that are sovereign and some things that are not there are some things that are a little king, and there's only one sovereign king. That's the privilege of prayer. It's essential. 
But listen, it is only essential and it is only powerful because of number two, our covenant Lord. Now you can help me here on this if you want to look in Psalms 59. Remember we said that the word Lord is rare in this section of the psalm. And so what you can do as you look down is find the word Lord. Because he uses that particularly for a reason. Because he's normally using the word God or Elohim. What he's, and then we're not getting into a lot of this today because we've seen it over and over. God for David is his offensive and defensive strategy. He's not simply saying, Lord, I need a fortress to climb into and you know, hopefully they'll get tired and go away. He's saying, no, that's, this is where we're going. I'm believing God's going to launch his offensive in my life. God's going to do something to the enemies. That's what he's looking for. It is the covenant Lord. So what does he mean when he says, when he says that? He's thinking of Yahweh, the, the God of my father's. The one who chose the idol-worshiping pagan named Abram and put his affections and his promise on him. Exodus 6 was in the psalmist's mind. It says, God spoke, Exodus 6, 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. You remember the burning bush. This is what's in his mind when he's praying. He's remembering that there was a people that was imprisoned and oppressed by someone more powerful than them. And they prayed and God showed up. Exodus 3 verse 7 said, The Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. Because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. To bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have seen the oppression of which the Egyptians oppressed them. God said to Moses, verse 14... I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people that I am has sent me to you. This is who he's praying to. This is why he chooses to use the word Lord. And notice where he uses it first. Look at verse 3. He said, behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men who stir up against me for no transgression of sin of mine, O Lord. He's saying, oh Lord, I'm innocent of this. He's not saying he's sinless. He's saying, I didn't do anything to cause this situation. I am innocent in regards to this situation. I have done nothing but serve the king. And he has rose up in anger and slander and threats to to hunt me down. The Lord gives strength to the powerless. That's That's what he's counting on here. He's saying, that's me. I'm powerless here. Help me. As you helped those before me, your people, help me now. He's teaching us when we're innocent of wrongdoing, we bring it to the Lord and we set the person and the situation before Him and let Him deal with them. And then we trust Him and live. 
Do you find, where else do you find the use of the Lord? Find it, do you see it? Where's the next place? Verse 5, you see it? It says, now listen to how he piles up words here. He's just piling up words for God. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish the nations. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. So you got Lord, you got God of hosts, and you have God of Israel. He's piling that up intentionally. This is very unique the way he says this. He's, he's using his theology to understand what God is going to do. He's saying he is Yahweh. He is the God of our fathers. He is the Lord of hosts. When he comes, his army comes with him. He comes in power and might to tread down the nations. That's my God. And he is the God of Israel. He is making, listen, desperate prayer is still thoughtful prayer. He's making a logical argument here to God. Are you not the God of Israel? Are you not the one, God? We did not first choose you. You chose us. You set your covenant love and faithfulness on us. You made a promise. God, are you not going to show up? Do you see what they're doing to us? Are you going to keep continuing them to hurt your servants? Will you not triumph? These are not only the questions that David asked. These are the questions that the prophets asked. These are the questions, the honest prayer that we come to when we pray. And we don't understand what God is doing. He's asking God, this is who you are. So rouse yourself and come to my aid. He is in all of these words. If you look at what these words mean, they all mean fortress. They all mean strength. They all mean refuge. He's looking for that place that he can come to get away from the dogs that are pursuing him. Psalms 89 verse 8 says, O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Now look at the next Lord in the text. Do you find it? It's in verse 8. It says the Lord laughs. This is interesting, isn't it? So as he comes to God in prayer, in desperate prayer, as he begins to set his situation in contrast to God, we can begin to see in every one of these lament psalms, confidence begin to grow. And so having contrasted his enemy against God, as powerful as Saul was, he says in verse 8, But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. The Lord looks at Saul and all his plotting and all his planning, and the Lord laughs at his plans because he can do nothing that God only permits. He looks to God as his warrior, and he's now he's gained a new perspective, a, a new confidence. His situation hasn't changed. And listen, it's not going to change. But he's fighting for faith here, and we see it coming. You see, prayer to our covenant Lord is essential and powerful, but it must be joined with our expectant faith. That's our third weapon. Expectant faith. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, Oh, my strength, capital S, Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love 
will meet me. God will let me look and triumph over my enemies. So you see it in the line. First line of verse 9. I will watch for you. First line, verse 10. He will meet me. I will watch for you, and he will meet me. That's expectant faith. Faith filled expectancy. Faith hopes and faith expects. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the New Living Translation puts it this way. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. It is not based on a wish. It is based on his strength. Do you see it? Oh, my strength. It's not his individual strength. My strength is capital F. He is saying, oh, my Lord. Oh, my fortress. Oh, my God. That's his strength. His strength is not in his own prowess to drum it up on himself, to make it through this hard season of life. He's saying, the only way I'm going to make it through is if my God shows up, and my God will show up, and I'm going to watch for him. It's a picture of climbing up on that watchtower and looking. He's going to come. Expectant faith knows two things. Do not change. God is powerful, and he will show up in my life. There is nothing that you cannot endure in your life if you understand and believe with faith that those two things are true. God is powerful, and he is sovereign, and he has set his affections on me, and he's going to show up in my life. On that I know. He will meet me. God-ordained deliverance is on this way. Verse 10, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. What else does expectant faith know? He loves me. That's why he's coming. He loves me. Not going to leave me out here. He's willingly, knowingly of his own volition. By his own sovereign grace, he did not have to, but he chose to. He set his love on me. He is bound Himself to me and covenant love. This is why secular dating, by the way, is so dangerous. It distorts the biblical understanding of love as more than a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is a commitment to bring all of who you are to another forever. And if you're not willing to do that, you do not love somebody the way God says to love them. That's steadfast love. It's God's covenant goodness and faithfulness and kindness and mercy and zeal that he brings to bear in the life of his people. We need hope for that. That's what David knows. That's who God is. And he's coming. And when he's coming, his love's coming with him. What would you do for your children? What would God do for his? Psalms 57, just a page back in your Bible probably. It says this, verse 3, remember we read this earlier? It says, He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to him to shame who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That's what he's sending. It's the purpose of the fortress. That's the place where steadfast love and faithfulness is. It is not a prison for those who believe. It is the place where love is. And if you step outside the gate, guess what's waiting on you? The dogs are waiting on you. It's a real illustration. 
And too many people have found out that it's true. There's safety in God's family. And it's dangerous to be out there on your own. We're not made for it. We are made for God. And we are made to live in community with His people. Verse 10. That word to meet, do you see that in the text? It means to show up first thing in the morning. It means when I get up in the morning, what's going to be waiting on me? I love this passage. The steadfast love, Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. It's what he's saying. He's going to meet me when I get up in the morning. Here he's going to be there. He's coming. And I will watch for him. And he will meet me. And here's what the other conclusion is. That if I will watch for him, I will wait for him. And he will meet me. I will be victorious. Do you see it in the text? God will let me look in triumph. He believes that he will be triumphant over Saul though he'll spend the next 15 years of his life running from him. You've got to have a purpose. God has already given David his. Weak prayers stem from weak faith. Weak prayers stem from weak faith. As your faith grows, you'll see your prayers grow stronger. David is strong not because he knows how to fight, and that he does. David is strong because his God is strong. Because his God is strong, his faith is strong. Fourth, we come to God in desperate prayer to our covenant Lord. We are expectant because of who he is. And here's what happens in the midst of the heart and the storm. Confident praise. We've seen this in every lament. You, you can see it in your life. This is why learning how to lament, lament well in times of grief and trauma and trial is important. Because in the midst of that, you will see confident praise. You see that in verse 16 and 17. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of distress. Verse 17, oh my strength, here's the chorus, oh my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. It's the foundation of his praise. This is the center of the praise. It's that understanding of God as our fortress. The dogs are howling on the outside. But because there's strength in the walls, there's strength in the fortification, that God is our strength and our faith resting in Him. Though the dogs are still howling, the people are singing. The children are playing in the streets. They're in school and learning, even though there's war going on outside. Why? Because the wall is there. Because the gates are there. Because the tower's there. Because there's people on the towers. That's the picture. When God comes, His love and His justice comes with Him. Spurgeon said, The morning is come, coming, and your sun will go no more down forever. This song is sung for God alone. Sung to God alone. For only God is the one that can bring deliverance. And He will make you sing 
Even in the storms, God is our fortress. He is our refuge. You see that in verse 16? A fortress, if you look up verse 11, you use the word shield. A fortress is just a giant shield (laughs) to protect you. It's what it's meant to do. And it's not only simply to protect you. It's there for the community of faith. God's people are inside the fortress. He keeps the dogs out. People are mining the gate. Just don't open the gate and let anybody come in. That's how, the, that's how the wolves get into church, by the way. It's just open the gates of membership and let them all come in. The gate's there for a reason. The fortress is there to warn people of attack when they come. Listen to Ezekiel 3.17. Son of man, I have made for you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear the word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. Pastors and teachers are set to the church to stand on the wall and to proclaim, here the enemy comes. And praise God, I've never experienced it at this church, but many of you have. God help people who stir up strife in the church and run off their pastors because if they do, nobody's standing on the wall. Who's standing on the wall? Who's calling in this room to stand on the wall? And proclaim God, whether it's popular or not. This is the only thing that God's people need to warn them of the enemy of coming and to show them how they may live with peace and joy in the midst of war. Somebody's got to stand on the wall and warn them. That's the purpose of the fortress. God is our refuge. He is our strength. He provides safety and security from us. He sees... What's going on when we can't? He sees through people's motivations when we can't. We pray to Him to gather people that we need into our life and to take people away that we do not need in our life, and we trust Him when He does it, even when it hurts. So what today? I want to help you here. An application before the application. This is not in your notes. Matter of fact... I changed my application completely from what's on your notes. Um, and even that I want you to understand. So I want to just take a minute. How do I week after week um, find an application in our lives for any given text? Uh, Monday, when I start, um, there'll just be a, a blank piece of paper. Every sermon starts like this. <laughs> With nothing. So, how does that happen? I read the text. And inside that text, God has put the main thrust, the main idea, the main key word of that text is in there. I don't make it up. I don't invent it. I don't bring my opinion to it. I simply read it and say, that's the word. This week it was what? Fortress. I already knew that word. I've studied these these passages weeks and even months before you hear it. And that word has already been there. It is a non-negotiable aspect of the sermon. And then I began this week to ask the question, why that word? Why that word important for David? What would the original audience think when they heard fortress? What kind of fortresses do we have? Is, Is fortification important in our life? Or what does that look like? Where do we find 
security and safety and confidence to live our life. I begin to ask those questions. It's all right there in, in the text. When I'm scared, where do I run? When you're scared, where do you run? And I don't mean to bring this up again, but it's just true. It's just my situation. I'm helping you understand the pastor must first apply the text to himself and then into your life. I did not spend very much time this week mulling over cancer. But I spent hours this week thinking about God as a fortress. There's a lesson here, brothers and sisters. Did you get it? That's not just true in the pastor's life. We study God's Word chapter by chapter, book by book, so that you know where I'm going to preach next week. And it is your responsibility to pick it up and to study it and to say, what is the word here? What is the phrase here? Because it's that word that's key to your life. And if you spend your week thinking about that and not thinking about things that you cannot control anyway, you will find yourself singing when you get to church on Sunday. And the reason we don't sing when we get to church on Sunday is because we wait till Sunday to open the book. We must open it. I've given you a devotion. They're out there on the table so that you can understand what the main idea. And you're robbing yourself of a blessing and the ability to fight if you don't avail yourself of that. I am so privileged to be able to preach because this has given not only hopefully you hope, but it's given your pastor hope. Because you got a storm in your life, and i got a storm in my life, and God ain't seen fit to move them yet, and we need hope right now. Amen? And so, what are you placing your hope in? What are you placing your trust in? What makes you feel secure and safe? Because if it's something temporal, and come on, let's just be honest. If it's something temporal, can I ask you, How's that been going? Putting our trust in people and things. Some of us have bought into this sort of American mantra, sung a long time ago, I can just do it my way. But here's what I was thinking as I was thinking about the text this week. If I could ask Paul, Paul, what do you think about that word fortress? I think what he would do, it's the reason there's a different passage in your notes than on the screen. I think what he would do would be open up this verse. Because he, Paul did not use the word uh, fortress. But he was consumed with what it meant to be in Christ. So let me just read it. Ephesians 1. I'll emphasize That emphasis is mine. Verse 3, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, with which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ 
is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Jesus is our fortress, and we have no other And there is no other way to enter into that fortress in your life except through faith in Christ alone. Have you entered into that faith and that rest? Because He's the only way and He's the only place that in the trials and the tribulations of your life that will stand fast in your life, immovably so, till He brings you safely home. As we close, I would give you three things today that helps us understand Christ as our fortress. In Christ, we have a union of righteousness. In Christ, He has counted our sin paid. Past, present, and future. Our sin have been counted to Christ and paid for and completely removed. In Christ, His holiness and Christ's perfect standing has been counted to us. Therefore, we are saved. We are safe. We are secure. We are at peace and in communion with the fullness of the Godhead because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have communion of righteousness. And in Christ, we have union of life. Union of life. Jesus brings spiritual life in the place of spiritual death. He unites us as vine is to branches that provides life and growth and fruit. That's purpose in your life. He saves you in order to not only remove your sin and to count you righteous, but to give a purpose for your life to live. We have union of life and we have union of affection. The Lord has set His affections on us and united us as a head is united to a body. As a wife is joined to her husband. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, just mull on this all week. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You just need to think about that. The union gives us not only connection to Christ, but gives us a new community to live with that lives inside that fortress together. Psalms 59, 17 again. Oh, my strength, I will sing praise to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. It is Christ who is our strength. It is Christ who is our fortress. And it is Christ alone who has proven his steadfast love by dying for you on the cross. Have you put your faith in him today? Let's pray. And so, Lord, we come to you, the one who has proven their love to us, By sending your own son. It is him now we turn to. It is him now. That I wait on. That many in this room wait on. Many watching online are waiting on you for a specific particular thing. But this we know. That you are for us. Because you have saved us.
because you have set your love on us and sealed us with the very Spirit of God, binding our spirit with yours. Lord, we don't understand that, but we praise you that it's true. And so now we do what you commanded us to do. We stand together in worship. We bring our offerings to you, not to pay for our sin, but as an expression of our joy and our generosity of your goodness. We come to the tables to remember that it was your son and him alone that provided salvation, the incarnation of your grace in your own son. And so now we come to remember that, to celebrate your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.